Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Ellis. Well, good morning and happy Friday. Our last day at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. It has been such a great week here promoting freedom of speech on all types of media formats and being able to uh, have some really good interviews this week. But I have particularly been excited about this one because uh, you, the AFR family, have not yet gotten to uh, have the privilege of hearing from one of my most favorite people in the world, who I've known for, um, I think it's been a little over a decade maybe now, which is... A little, a little crazy, but um, it, this is, of course, uh, Michael Ferris, who some of you know from his days at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, um, others as uh, his tenure as the CEO of the Alliance Defending Freedom, and now he's the general counsel of the NRB Association. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be with you, Jenna. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. And um, for those of you who don't know the history, um, just briefly, so I actually took uh, Mike's constitutional law class in high school and back then it was like one of those almost like exchange programs where you have to like mail in stuff you know I think you know I mean this is like ancient history here um but this but Mike was the first one to actually explain the constitution in context and I actually blame him for um my grade in law school in constitutional law being the lowest in law school because I was like this is not how the, the Constitution actually functions, and I was taught by the master. And um, and fast forward a few years, I, I really wanted to wrap my head around how I can advocate for the philosophy of the Constitution being premised in natural law and a fight for the Christian worldview and the argument of that in our Constitution, our founding documents, and ultimately wrote a book called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. And I reached out uh, to Mike. It was just on Facebook then, and I was I was shocked that you actually <laughs> responded. Um, but we had a phone call. You read the manuscript and ultimately wrote the foreword to that book, which was uh, really my launch into um, being able to talk more about the philosophy of the Constitution because um, Mike, as a great mentor to me, um, really platformed me and um, was able to to help me understand not only to have a better media voice, um, but also to take advantage of all opportunities to speak truth. So, um, so Mike, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for all of the investment that you've made in my life um, as a friend, a father figure, and a mentor over the years. Well, that's very kind of you, Jenna. I just wish that all the seeds I'd planted over the years had borne as much fruit as it has in your life. So you've done a great job and just very proud of you. Thank you so much. And uh, that, that means a lot to me coming from you. And um, so with, with your background as well, and now uh, the general counsel of the Natural, National Religious Broadcasters Association, um, I want to focus on religious freedom and freedom of speech um, from a constitutional perspective, because I think a lot of people, even conservatives, buy into this notion of separation of church and state and that the government can't actually tell us when, where, and how to exercise our faith. So um, just from a broad topic, um, explain this concept of religious freedom constitutionally and why it's so important for us to understand. Well, sure. Uh, first of all, um, the United States 
really launched religious freedom for the world. Uh, before that, Britain only got as far as religious toleration, which in effect meant, if you look at the Toleration Acts of William and Mary in the 1680s, it was, you could differ with the Church of England a little bit. So tolerance, is that's a really good description of tolerance today. You're allowed to disagree with the majority a little bit, and not too much. And then they don't really like you, they just tolerate you. Um, but religious freedom was born really out of the... the uh, uh, the not the Enlightenment, but the Great Awakening period. And the Great Awakening, w- with its message, you must be born again, taught about an individual relationship with God. And based on that individual relationship God, the right to, to approach God as an individual and not be told by the government how to approach God was really uh, a key to, to all of that and the key to the foundation of our country. And religious liberty, as opposed to co- uh, tolerance, is the government has no jurisdiction over the heart, soul, and mind of man. That's it. They can't tell us what to believe. They can't tell us how to practice our beliefs. They can't tell us when we can't practice our beliefs. And I say, absent a violation of the moral law of God. So since the moral law of God teaches us uh, that man is free, the moral law of God is also the boundaries. So you can't use religious freedom to commit murder. You can't use religious freedom to steal people's property. The moral law of God is is the, the balancing principle because it's not absolute. The Supreme Court has correctly said the practice is not absolute because you can't do child sacrifice in the name of religion. Again, the moral law of God balances the moral law of God. But uh, um, our country was built on the idea that since government doesn't have jurisdiction, there's no ability for the government to enact what amounts to heresy prosecutions. And so all they're seeing in the woke agenda is uh, a standard of orthodoxy, and if you deviate from that standard of orthodoxy, you will be punished. That's a heresy prosecution. And so what we see going on right now is a a massive repudiation of the foundational principles of this country. One way to say it, we used to say as Americans, I may disagree with everything you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. The left doesn't believe that anymore. And they openly repudiate that, and that's the, the state of affairs of where we are today. I think that's such a brilliantly articulated point to call it a heresy prosecution. And has um, has that really been raised as a defense in some of these prosecutions or are judges starting to look at it like that? To some degree, yes. Uh, there's a famous statement in the case of West Virginia versus Barnett, which was a, a forced flag salute case uh, for Jehovah Witnesses in the 40s. And the court said there, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, is that no official, high or petty, uh, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in matters of religion, philosophy, politics, nationalism, or any other matter of, of opinion. That phrasing from from Barnett is is the key standard for the principle that I I believe in and, and advocate. It's a, a good distillation of longstanding principles, uh, and so. Um, the, some judges are, are citing that in, in important cases. And so I don't know that anybody sp- specifically said heresy, but they say look at the Barnett standard and see how it's being violated. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, and I'm talking with uh, Michael Ferris, who is the general counsel of uh, the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters Association, and um, a fantastic litigator. And um, and Mike, so when, when you look at cases then that are um, really – 
prosecutions against what the left would like tolerance to be in this country. And we think, of course, of some of um, the, the ADF cases like Masterpiece or 303 Creative. Does that same principle, in effect, um, still apply in some of those instances? Sure, because the one kind of prosecution is uh, suppressing speech they don't like. And the other side of the same coin is forcing people to deliver speech they don't want to deliver. The last case I argued in the Supreme Court in 2018 was a coerced speech case. California wanted pro-life pregnancy centers to say, if you want a free abortion, call this 800 number. And those pro-life pregnancy centers were never going to say that. It was a pretense to get them to shut down. But nonetheless, on the surface, it was a free speech coercion case. And uh, fortunately, um, um, we were blessed to win a 5-4 to four victory there. It should have been 9-0, but nonetheless, um, the, Justice Thomas wrote a terrific opinion uh, articulating that the government cannot coerce you to say a message you don't believe in. And so the, the woke messengers, the, the coerced pronoun cases, are coerced speech cases. They want you to, you know, use pronouns for people that are of their own choice rather than match their biology. And so that's important because language is important. And, you know, we, uh, you know, when you think about the difference between different kinds of authoritarian governments, a regular old dictatorship just wants you to obey. A totalitarian government is distinguished by wanting to, to control your thoughts, your, st- your speech, and your beliefs. And we are seeing the shadows of totalitarianism. And there's technological totalitarianism. There is governmental totalitarianism. It's not fully Im- embedded. But, I mean, a lot of it was embedded in the COVID thing. When you, when you can't say what turns out to be really scientifically accurate about the vaccines, when you can't say what you want to say about uh, the masking and, you know, that this is dumb, it doesn't work, why are you doing this, you're hurting yourself, you were, you were censored. You were technologically told, you don't say, you're not saying the right thing, you're not believing the right thing, we are going to hurt you. And then with doxing that goes on, where you'll lose your jobs. So this is uh, the early stages of a totalitarian movement because they don't believe in God. I mean, when you, if you don't believe in God, ultimately that's where you end up. Uh, it, it's inevitable because you reject God's morality, you need some way to enforce your idea of what's right and wrong, and the only way to do that is with a totalitarian leader. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where you and I have had so many other conversations about how um, all law is legislating morality. It's just whose morality are we enforcing? And if it is not based on an objective uh, premise and an objective never-changing God who is the divine lawgiver, then this is just up to the whim of an arbitrary collective of whoever is uh, is in power and is the one that will enforce. And so for the people who would um, the leftists, and, and there are probably a few listening to this because they like to, you know, to, to listen. I love that they that they listen and they write the articles making fun of me because at least they'll hear the truth. Um, but they would say, well, separation of church and state requires that th- that law has to be amoral, uh, neither immoral nor specifically uh, prescribing according to one particular worldview or religion. Well, that's utter nonsense that has been rejected by the Supreme Court categorically. Uh, you know, there, there's no court that's ever said such a thing. Because, it, again, all law is made uh, based on somebody's morality. And so if you can't use biblical morality, you can't have laws against murder. You can't have laws against stealing, which explains what's going on in a lot of the prosecutions in New York City and Loudoun County, Virginia, and other places like that. Because uh, 
um, you know, these are crimes that should not be p- prosecuted. Uh, so they're rejecting God's morality in some quarters, but our country has never been based on, on that. Uh, the, the principle of the so-called separation of church and state, the Establishment Clause, properly understood is you can't have an official state church. That's the basic point. After that, you can't coerce people to believe or conform to some religious practice. And so, you know, uh, you can, you, you, we couldn't conform people. The law of Massachusetts in the 1600s, uh, it's criminal offense uh, to not participate in infant baptism. So I, as a Baptist, and only believe in believer's baptism, would have been executed in Massachusetts. That's, that's a violation of the Establishment Clause. There's an official standard, and I had to follow that particular religious practice. That's a violation of the Establishment Clause. So coercion by the government relative to a particular religious practice or a national church, other than that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that religious people can't be involved in civic life on a full basis, just like everybody else. What they're really arguing for is a denial of equal protection. They're saying, we can bring our godless philosophy into the voting booth, but you can't bring your philosophy into the voting booth. No, everybody should be able to bring their own philosophy into the voting booth. Vote it out. Let's see how it goes. Um, now, I will always argue that our philosophy is better for the population at large, and that's my duty as a Christian to produce, prove that it's not just good for me and people who believe like me. My duty is to prove that it's good for society at large, and that's the, that should be their duty as well. But they just want to coerce people. So you can see where the coercion lies. There's, there's, I don't know of any examples that are relevant where there's coercion that's being advocated in the United States these days. Um, that doesn't involve another person. You know, the people will say the abortion, that well, that's coercion. Well, but that's because there's another person. Mm-hmm. And when you put another person in the equation, then that, that changes because one person can't violate another person's rights. And that's the whole premise of the pro-life movement. But otherwise, there's not even an argument that there's coercion involved anywhere. The other side is all about coercion. They're the ones that are violating the Establishment Clause. Every time they force us to believe or say we believe or punish us for what we believe, there's a combination of both free exercise problems and establishment clause problems. Well said, and and this is why you get the wins at the Supreme Court. (laughs) So I'm talking with uh, the now general counsel of the National Religious Broadcasters Association, my very dear friend and mentor, Mike Ferris, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back, and I'm talking about all things religious freedom with uh, my good friend Mike Ferris, who is the general counsel of the National Religious Broadcasters Association and prolific uh, litigator, has won uh, multiple cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. You've argued uh, several, and um, and Mike, your understanding of the constitutional principles and and being 
able and willing to challenge these uh, ridiculous woke mindsets of people who are trying to coerce speech of Christians or foreclose it um, has now given you the opportunity to uh, get back in the ring, I think, of litigating, which is where you belong. I know you're a, you are a fighter and a champion for truth. And um, so you actually have several cases now, and uh, one in particular that you want to talk about uh, that NRB is fighting. Yeah, uh, NRB has filed a lot of amicus briefs, including a, a brief I uh, helped on on the um, Colorado Supreme Court for Jack Phillips. And uh, uh, we argued in that case that the ability to force Jack to use his platform to deliver a message he doesn't want to deliver can be applied to Christian radio stations that force them to use their platform to deliver a message they don't want to deliver. And that kind of coerced speech is just flatly unconstitutional. There are no exceptions to that. Coerced speech is unconstitutional. And so, um, but the case that we're litigating as a party um, is in California in federal district court there. California passed a law in the last few weeks um, that requires social media companies that are over a certain size to um, monitor the people on, the, on their site, uh, let's take Facebook as an example, if people post things that, they can, that California considers to be hate speech or extremism or radicalization or disinformation or misinformation, all those things being undefined and at the entire whim of the Attorney General and Governor of California, then there are fines, $15,000 a day in some instances, that can be up to $150,000 a day if they find it to be willful and repeated. And so um, uh, this case was bought, brought by Minds Incorporated, uh, Tim Poole, and my really, really favorite group, the Babylon Bee. Um, <laughs> and um, we love them. I, I was asked uh, as uh, on behalf of NRB to join in NRB's representative capacity because our members are be, will be affected by this, this law in two ways. Uh, like the Babylon Bee and like Tim Poole and, and Mines, um, our members are impacted by the law because they will be silenced. There will be efforts to silence them in order to comply with this law by the media companies. But Salem Broadcasting uh, actually has to comply with the law because they're of the, of the right size and they have um, sites on the, in their, their uh, network of activities where people can create profiles and talk to each other, which is the criteria for being a social media company under the, sta- under the standards of the law. And so NRB really helps on the standing argument because the argument could be made, well, you're just affected down the wind from this, wait till you're affected, and then you can bring the case. No, we're, uh, we're bringing the case now before it gets uh, operational. And uh, NRB really helps in the standing. And it's really clear that, that giving California the ability to per- punish social media companies if they don't conform to California's idea on all these topics uh, just simply feeds those. You ask, why is Facebook not challenging it? Because they love it. Right. You know, you know, now they can blame all their censorship on California law. Right. And, and so um, – the the duty to comply is an excuse for censorship, and and so um, we are uh, going after it. And uh, I, I feel good about this because it, it reminds me of the case that uh, ADF helped litigate in the Supreme Court on California's attempt to get donor lists uh, through the Attorney General's office there. And the basic question is, what are you going to do with the list? 
Right. And and so why do you um, want it? Yeah, why do you want it? And and they didn't have a good reason for why they needed it and wanted it, <laughs> or one they were willing to reveal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, that's the same thing here. You know, the, on the surface, it's just turning in information to California. But the question is, oh, why do you want this? Mm-hmm. And it's really clear why they want it, because the governor and the attorney general and the sponsors of the legislation all said so. They're out to curtail speech they don't like. And in, in their press conferences, their public announcements, their websites, it's all filled with evidence that says they're in thought control mode here, speech control mode here. And that's not the business of any government. I don't care how progressive you think you are. You cannot control legitimately the speech. And I feel very good about the prospects of this case. I don't even know that it will need to get to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's so blatantly unconstitutional. I think it's we, we've got a shot even in, in the – the system that we're in right now, I, I feel I feel good about our shot. And and what's the next stage of the proceeding? Well, it's just gotten filed. Okay, oh, yeah. so we're so, at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. A motion to dismiss is coming up in the next few weeks, and then that'll be heard in a, by the end of June or something like that. Okay, and so how wide of a net did this legislation from California actually attempt to cast? I mean, is this um, corporations and social media companies actually based in California, or is it just doing business in having members in California? Any social media company that is present on the internet on a California computer is subject to the law. Wow. So everybody. So literally everybody. everybody. Because, yeah, if I, just, if I just happen to take a flight and land briefly in L.A. and I'm on, you know, the, the Salem Networks app, then that counts. I mean, th- that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, Salem has a big presence in California. Yes. So, so you know, that's not even a question for them. But, but you know, uh, um, if a company was based in Vermont. Like AFR in Tupelo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the, the, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and so it's, you know, do you do business in California, which means can Californian citizens and residents get your site on, the, on their computers? Wow. And, and, and this is just a, yet another example of this type of petty tyranny and the wokeism mindset that we were talking about in the previous segment. Um, and Mike Ferris is my guest. He's the general counsel of NRB and um, talking broadly about religious liberty and making sure that we are staying within the principles of the Constitution, actually genuinely promoting and protecting liberty in this country. And um, so w- when you're fighting cases like this, of course, in the litigation side, it often seeks to uh, to then say, you know, this is harm that's occurring, and we want this to be overturned. This is bad legislation. Um, but on the on the flip side of that, how would you suggest, from a constitutional standpoint, that conservatives need to champion good legislation to prevent things like this um, fr- on the state level and also in Congress as well? Well, the uh, the problem right now is uh, that. Facebook and Twitter, well, not Twitter anymore, but Twitter historically, um, and um, you know, Google and others are using their platforms in a way that is clearly politically and religiously biased. Uh, their, you know, their algorithms suppress. Uh, sometimes it's just the AI that's suppressing it, but you know, the AI has been programmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's Taylor Lorenz or others. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but the um, they tell people publicly um, that um, they're neutral. They're politically neutral. They've made a promise to people. And we are the product. You know, what, what does Google make money off of? They make money off us using their search engine. So it's, it's the selling information about us is how they make a good share of their money. And so they're in the consumer business. 
and they made promises in the, in, in the consumer business that they're politically neutral. Well, the fact that they are not politically neutral, I believe, is a violation of the consumer protection laws in every state. Uh, and uh, I think that that's one way to, to uh, you know, that I'm investigating in, on helping guide the discussion to shut this down. The other thing is it's pretty clear that they have become a, uh, a public utility in effect. Uh, the, the conversations of this country take place uh, on, on the Internet, and there is no functional difference other than it's faster and more graphic between a telegraph and, um, and the Internet or a telephone call and the voiceover stuff on the Internet. It's, it's the same. It's exactly the same. It's the same correlation between, you know, why are your computer records protected by the Fourth Amendment? Well, because your computer records are the, are the equivalent of papers. And so the, 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 the Fourth Amendment specifically says it protects your papers. Well, people have figured out that that's the equivalent. So we, you know, it's the factual equivalent. The equivalent here, they, they are, and, and we, we would never have allowed, our law wouldn't allow the telephone company to not let you have a telephone line because they don't like your content. Or you can't send telegraphs because we don't like your content. They're public carriers. They have to do it. And I think that the same laws here, this is not mere private property. These are consumer protection issues because, you know, this is what they've promised and they function as a public utility. I, I think that their, their ability to uh, keep people off the, uh, their, their sites, as long as it's protected speech. There are kinds of speech, treasonous speech, Obscenity, you know, if they were as con- uh, concerned about obscenity as they are about, uh, you know, Christians saying that there are only two genders, uh, there would be no obscenity on, on the Internet. Right. Uh, and by treason, you don't mean, you know, somebody that, you know, now doesn't support Joe Biden. You know, I mean, no, that I mean, where, I mean, because the left, of course, is trying to take terms like that and then just manipulate them and, and apply them in a way that's absurd. Exactly. Um, Treason means giving the so give, in the days of the Soviet Union or giving Russia today military secrets to the United States. That's treason, right? Uh, yeah. Right, and, that, and and so if you're if you're posting content like that on Twitter, you know maybe you don't do that. Yeah. But um, but putting uh, political speech and political viewpoints, um, you know, and this is where I think conservatives need to be really careful about buying into the left's construct of these type of weaponized terms and applying them even in a. Um, in, in a fashion that that is just advocating for their political viewpoint, they need to be really careful yeah. about that. Well, it's really words are so important. I mean, J- John one one says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." I mean, precision about words is extremely important. Why is the battle over pronouns? Why is it a big deal about a pronoun? It's because there's a philosophical meaning behind it. If you say, choose your pronouns, what you're saying is, God did not create you male and female. Gender is fluid, and you can choose. And so uh, that's a lot in a pronoun, but that's what's going on. And so changing changing the meaning of marriage, you don't know what a woman is, saying, you know, um, whatever some of the constructs they've come up with. It's utter nonsense. People that can't say what a woman is, I mean, on the one hand, the Supreme Court appointee that Joe Biden made said she couldn't define a woman because she's not a biologist. And at the same time, they're touting her as a, as black, a woman. Woman, <laughs> black woman. Okay. And I want to know, 
when did Joe Biden get a degree in biology? <laughs> yes, yeah. that's the next logical question. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we wouldn't even need speech protections and this entire history of jurisprudence in the First Amendment if speech and words didn't have meaning and have clearly defined correlations to accurate descriptions in reality. Yeah. It's true. Uh, And so, you know, defending the traditional definition of what marriage is, what a man is, what a woman is. When I was a kid, nobody would have ever thought that these were an issue, ever. Ten years ago, nobody would have thought we were having questions about what a man and a woman is. But when you undermine what marriage is, you've undermined what men and women are. And so the fallout of that decision is far greater. And you've got the crazy stuff of men who've competed on the on the men's team for the last three years and suddenly changed to be a woman and now are setting all-time records um it's 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 crazy it's just utter insanity beyond things and and um you know the power of words uh, they're so afraid of words uh, the fbi on, it was on the front page of the washington times this last week um the fbi is now nodding a lot not allowing for the identification of suspects to list their race their gender or nationality or other things that really don't make sense. But race and gender makes sense. You know, so if a white guy you know, on disability is another one. So if a white man in a wheelchair robs a bank, you, the FBI cannot say, look for the white guy in a wheelchair. They wow. have to say, a person robbed the bank. <laughs> now, how are you going to catch anybody? You're, you're not going to suspect the, the white guy in the wheelchair. Right. And what's going to happen is natural suspicion is going to fall. It's going to be actually more racist in character. Right. Yeah, and it's going to have the exact adverse effect. And and it's so ridiculous. I, mean, I was at um, an, an urgent care a couple of weeks ago. For Florida has a lot of bugs and bug bites, I'm just saying. But um, I was checking in on their little app. And because this was a healthcare facility and they didn't want to be uh, offensive, there were two checkboxes that was um, gender you were assigned at birth and gender you now identify with. And I'm like, okay, but this is where the the doctors realize it's actually important to know what biology we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I have a son who's a genetic researcher. Uh, He's a PhD in in biogenetics. Uh, And he said, you can't. You can't do genetics research without knowing their biological gender. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. And and it's so funny. We still look back at um, the archaeologists and excavations that exhume, you know, thousands of year old uh, bodies. And we can tell if it was a male or female. It wasn't, well, I don't know, you know, if Cleopatra actually identified as a woman. So we don't know her her actual gender. I mean, it's just so absurd. But in just the last minute I have with you, uh, Mike Ferris, you know, where is this all going? And do we have hope for a return to sanity in America? Well, I think we do. I think that the left has outpunted their coverage. And, uh, uh, you know, we're going to tell a lot in the 2024 election. And so if there's a clear, articulate message that, uh, you know, if we see for America what's been happening in Florida as an example, uh, that message is common sense. And uh, I think the, the vast majority of Americans still respond to common sense. Let's hope so. And, and I would agree with you. And I think that we are just seeing that amplification of some of the crazies and the insane platforms as a method to coerce a bandwagon fallacy and say this is uh, what the message is. And so you will, uh, you know, you will be offensive and not be part of this unless you just go along with our message. But this is why litigation like yours is so important. So Mike Ferris, thanks so much for joining me today on American Family Radio. And uh, we will be praying for you. And of course, we're uh, privileged to be part of NRB. So Thank thanks. you, Jenna. Thank you so much. 
We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And we've been talking about the importance of religious freedom, the importance of freedom of speech, which actually means the ability to speak uh, the perspectives and the opinions and uh, the viewpoints that you have. But also the flip side of that uh, is the ability to not be coerced by the government or by anyone else to speak messages or uh, viewpoints that you fundamentally disagree with. And this is why it's so incredibly important that we all understand the U.S. Constitution, understand the substance of what the Establishment Clause in context actually means, not just how it's being manipulated by people who are, by the way, expressing their opinions and viewpoints on religious freedom um, and everything openly on social media, and, and understand this in a historical context and also how it's now being applied to our law and our policy uh, from today. And so um, Mike Ferris, who is the general counsel for the National Religious Broadcasters Association, joined me in the prior two segments. If you missed that interview, of course, you can always go to AFR.net and listen to the podcast version of this program Uh, today or whenever you have time over the weekend, and it will be Memorial Day weekend. So uh, that is a a wonderful celebration of those who have um, gave the last full measure of their devotion to our country and have literally laid down their lives so that we could continue to participate in this great experiment that we call the United States of America. And so um, we we do need to understand religious freedom. And a couple of things that I wanted to continue to highlight about my conversation um, with Mike Ferris, and one of the things I, I didn't actually have time um, to follow up and ask him, was uh, in the context of words being important and words accurately describing reality and words having meaning. And this is how we communicate and we understand each other is through language. It's through written word. Um, is this whole idea now that is a totally leftist thing that is SOGI language, um, S-O-G-I, which is sexual orientation and gender identity language. Uh, This has been a problem from the left trying to impute into our term and our definition of sex, um, meaning the measurable difference between a man and a woman, biology, basic, you know, the, the two genders, and say that, that that this term sex now includes sexual orientation, um, who uh, among other humans or maybe, you know, other creatures or things now with some of this other crazy stuff that the left is getting into, um, who you are attracted to, and which is, of course, a personal opinion. And it's something that is a um, a, a mental viewpoint. It's not a physiology aspect of your biological reality. Um, we don't look back on, you know, someone that whose body we've exhumed, who's a human being from, you know, thousands of years ago, and we can't tell by their biology uh, what orientation they were in terms of their sexual activity and proclivities. And um, and this is why, you know, for a long time, 
the left did suggest that there was somehow this uh, gay or homosexual gene, right? And and there was, there was this whole thing, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s of, you know, you're born with it and this is predetermined as part of your physiology. You can't help yourself, all of those other things. Well, now it's, it's – and I think that they did that purposefully to open the door – of tolerance and to say that if people genuinely cannot help that, like you would not punish someone or think poorly of them if they were born without a limb. That's that's not their own fault, right? That is just a um, that that is something that is part of their physiological construct of their uh, personal body, and so you don't fault them for that. And so I think that the left did this so that we would tolerate as a society. And even um, be be okay with and 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 feel bad to an extent, but um, but also affirm that people's um, sexual proclivities were part of their basic biology, and it's not their fault. They were born this way, and so then after society um, unfortunately bought into that, and a lot of churches did it as well, which they should not have. Uh, We have to be very clear on the definition of marriage. And even if people have um, these types of urges or these types of attractions, um, there's a biblical way to deal with that, which is not to go and sin because you feel like it. It is never a justification to act on any urge. It's not, well, I'm a hypochondriac, so you know, don't blame me for that. Just allow me to go and steal whatever I want. It doesn't work like that. And and so once, unfortunately, society at large uh, in America and you know a lot of other uh, westernized uh, countries in the world bought into that, then it became, well, this is a preference. This is my orientation and you need to affirm my choices. And so now it's become, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, which, you know, of course is sexual orientation is outward feeling and thinking that's projected onto other people. And then gender identity is your own projection of what you think about yourself. So those two ideas then the left tried to impute into this term sex. And so then you get to this whole, if you've seen this, and and probably many parents have out there, um, the gender-bred man, and I put that in air quotes, um, and, and it's and it's like this gingerbread person, um, you know, the outline of what you would think of as the Christmas cookie, and this explanation by leftists of a gender person that your physiology determines um, your sex, but your mind determines how you think about attraction and what you think about the biology that you were born with. And now we have this idea that whatever you think about the biology that you were born with and whatever uh, genitalia you have as a human being, then whatever you think about it actually dictates uh, what the correct response is. And this is the the worldview that has now been perpetuated by leftists to say, if you think that you should not have been born the way that you were, it's not, hey, born this way, you know, I mean, I was born as a woman, and so I'm a woman. Um, and, and not, it's no longer this born this way. It is a, well, I don't like that. I don't feel that way. I don't want to be that way. So now you can arbitrarily of your own will change your biology. They think, right? And it's, so this, it's, it's the self-determinism of arbitrating reality. 
And so this whole type of soji language that they're trying to impute into this term sex um, was then uh, unfortunately ratified and adopted into the um, this decision from the Supreme Court just a couple of years ago. Um, and and this whole idea in the uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act in this case uh, was suggesting that the 1964 Congress actually meant sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, which is, of course, ridiculous because nobody was talking about any of those things in the context of the civil rights movement, in the context of protecting biological women in employment law situations, making sure that there was not a discrimination based on sex that was unlawful. Sometimes you can discriminate. By the way, you know, you and I make discrimination and discriminating decisions every day. That's, I mean, when you, when you go to a restaurant and you have all these options on the menu, guess what? You're discriminating against everything else that you don't order. But that's okay. That is lawful and it's not illegal to do that, right? So discrimination by itself is not inherently always a bad thing. And it used to be said, oh, he's a person of discriminating taste. That actually used to be a compliment, right? But now the left would like us to believe that if you make any sort of discrimination, that's always bad. Well, no, it's there are types and forms of discrimination that are illegal or violate the law. But in the context of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, to say that that Congress was contemplating sexual orientation and gender identity and saying, now we can't discriminate in any of our laws or any of our practices and policy, and that we have to include um, SOGI language is utterly absurd for two reasons. First, there we know from the legislative history, SOGI language was not part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act or that contemplation. But second, this idea that we can define sex as including sexual orientation and gender identity is itself totally absurd. And we have to, and as, as Mike Ferris mentioned in the last segment, we have to make sure that words still mean a concrete definition so that we can communicate. But I am convinced, and my good friend Michael Knowles as well wrote a book called Speechless that I would highly recommend. And his whole point in this book is what we're talking about here, which is that the left is trying on purpose to take words and make them vague. On purpose, there is not an articulable definition to the meaning of a term. And so we are all presuming that this term means whatever we individually want it to mean. And in fact, um, earlier this week at uh, NRB, I was at um, the Salem uh, Media Breakfast way too early in the morning, by the way. Um, but the conversation in the panel there um, with Eric Metaxas, uh, my friend Owen Strand, who's been on this show before, and a few others, were talking about Christian nationalism. Right. And we've talked about it on this program. And the very first thing that I did in that segment was say, what is it? We have to define this. And if we define it in a certain way, we can agree with that. If we are Christians that want to have a moral uh, premise and a biblical worldview to our law, then, of course, we should be Christians that are pro-America. But if we define Christian nationalism 
as a theocracy or as saying, you know, vigilante justice is okay or, you know, any of these other things that the left tries to impute into that term, then no, I wouldn't be a Christian nationalist, right? So, so that term, I think, on purpose, for purposes of public debate over it, is intentionally vague. And the left is doing that so that we are all having debates past each other. And that they can use their own preferred definition of Christian nationalist, and they can impute that definition to all of us who are Christians that are pro-America, proudly wave the flag, will be uh, somber and have a moment of silence on Memorial Day on Monday, understanding what a great sacrifice and being thankful to the men and women who have literally sacrificed their lives for the freedoms of, of liberty that we enjoy today— they would say that that is uh, that all of us, because of their definition of Christian nationalists, are evil, right? Which interestingly has its own definition: evil. What is evil? What's the measurable difference between right and wrong, good and evil? Well, in order to even have the conversation, is Christian nationalism a good thing? Are you a Christian nationalist? Well, we have to first define it, and we have to have a common definition. The left is leaving that intentionally vague. They're doing that in the very same way to terms like sex, to terms uh, like Mike Ferris was talking about, to what is a woman, right? What does it mean to have a marriage? If you can't define what is a woman and you're leaving it intentionally vague and open to the subjective interpretation of what someone feels— Words no longer have meaning, and they are no longer communication tools and a medium and a vehicle to accurately describe reality so that we can engage each other in direct understanding of the world around us. Like the the entire point of words is to communicate the truth of reality. And to be able not just philosophically clash about ideas, which requires you to have abstract thinking, but that's even a higher level. Words have to concretely at their core accurately describe and define the contours of the physical thing itself in reality. And we have to be able to define the contours. My, my coffee mug that's sitting here, I have to, if I say this is my coffee mug, I, have to, I am defining the boundaries of what coffee mug is and what coffee mug is not, right? There's no vague subjectivity in actual reality of those physical boundaries. Otherwise, my coffee would leak all over the place, right? That's the, that's the nature of the physical world. Words in our spoken language, written format, as a communication vehicle, have to be as precise in articulating and describing reality. Otherwise, they are useless. And that is the very point that the left is driving. They want to make words useless, and they want to coerce our speech into affirming their vagueness and subjectivity, like the pronoun wars, like the difference between men and women in their mind being subjectively vague, so that they can ultimately control our thoughts and our behaviors and our viewpoints and our understanding of the reality to which God has presented us. And that at their core is their purpose. They want to be so intentionally vague that we no longer are seeking truth. We are seeking subjectivity, And we are ultimately seeking from within ourselves 
however we feel instead of understanding there is objective truth, there's measurable definitions to reality, there are constructs and contours to the reality that God has presented us to so that we can, in fact, know the truth of who the person of God is. So do not let them get away with being intentionally vague and having all of these uh, different definitions for things. Be specific, be precise, do not play their word games, and understand that this is literally, quite literally, a war on reality. So think about that going into this weekend. That's all the time that we have for here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Make it a great Friday. Have a wonderful Memorial Day. Thank you to all of the veterans out there who are listening that have served our country. My deepest thanks. I will see you on Monday.